And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario. 92.7 in your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. In addition to this radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca and usually the program's uploaded the next day. And every Thursday, a small crew of local pundits gathers at the Garnet Pub, Aylmer and Hunter, here in Peterborough at 5 p.m. for an informal gathering where at we talk about all things political. All are welcome. Please join us. We post on Twitter, at Bill Temp, and on the Cooperate Peterborough Facebook page. Joining me tonight in the studio is our panel on urban planning. Ian Adridge, teacher at Trent and coordinator of Reimag- uh, co-coordinator of Reimagine Peterborough. Sarah Cullingham, a member of the Planning Advisory Committee of the uh, City of Peterborough. Sarah holds a Master's in Planning. Cheryl Lyon, Chair of the Transition Town Board and a former Social Housing Administrator of the City of Peterborough. And Ben Wolf, who is a community builder and communicator with clients from Boston to Victoria. Thank you all for showing up. As as we were saying, it's 80% of life and we're there. So welcome aboard. We've had an election and sort of the ground has changed in Peterborough and I'd like to discuss the implications of that in just a moment. But before we get there, why should busy citizens pay attention to urban planning discussions and particularly the official plan review? What is the official plan review? Doesn't the city hire professionals to do this for us? So why? Any thoughts? Well, and this is Ben. <laughs> a number of us founded Reimagine Peterborough two and a half years ago because we think that the official plan is the single most important conversation that a city has once in a generation and that it usually happens behind closed doors. That's been the traditional way with very few people involved and that it can transform a city for a generation to have it be a widely participatory conversation. And it's really about what kind of city do we want to live in on on all levels? What does it look like? How do we move around? Um, What is our economic development strategy? What effect does this have on our living environment and natural environment. So uh, it matters a heck of a lot. And a lot of people usually don't get heard in the process. And we want to change that. But doesn't the city employ people with many degrees after their names who do this for us? And so those of us who aren't planners, who don't have any particular expertise, uh, we can trust that people of good faith are going to do this for us and Peterborough will be fine in 20 or 30 years. Well, certainly I think that there's... This is Sarah. (laughs) Thanks, Certainly I think that there is a good amount of professional, technocratic knowledge that is needed in planning, but planning is also really about policies of everyday life. And so people's everyday experiences and knowledge of how they use space, how they want to use space, and how that's affecting their physical and social well-being is an important aspect that needs to be brought into the fold of making these sorts of decisions. And that's what we can look to citizens to be able to provide to land use planning decisions and processes like the city's official community plan. Okay, now this this official plan. Ian, now you sit on the official plan working group. Could you give us uh, official plan 101? What's it all about? <laughs> well, official plan is really... 50 words or less. Yes. 50 words or less. Well, <laughs> That's a joke. Um, there's been lots written on it. Uh, I won't go over that. But it really is a vision for the future of the city and provides an outline of where development could happen, where protected um, environmental space might be, the kinds of designs that we may want to see in the community. So it provides a framework and it sort of is the, is the place where the community states its values and its preferences, builds on that community knowledge that Sarah was talking about, and then also melds that with some of the provincial directions. So it's sort of a top-down and bottom-up kind of meeting in the middle to guide all the city planning that comes day-to-day, whether it's uh, subdivision plans or zoning, those kinds of things. Those all must fit with the official plan. But, and, uh, and I have to confess to a certain cynicism here, doesn't the official plan tend to be sort of used when it's helpful and uh, voted around but with variances if someone wants to put in a toy store here or a, or a business there and it doesn't fit uh, that, you know, if there's a majority on council that wants that development, holus bolus, it's done. Certainly an official plan can be amended and actually gets updated from time to time. So the city over the past 30 
30-some-odd years, has updated various sections at mm-hmm. different times. And an application can come forward to change the zoning or change the planning direction for for a particular site. And that is something that is reviewed. It must go through the studies that are required in the official plan, must address the criteria that the province has set and the community has set. And then ultimately it's it's the staff who will make a recommendation and council can approve that or seek further information or seek to bring residents voices to the table so that we have a decision that is meeting multiple needs. So this process would prevent, let's say, embarrassments or wrong decisions from making, and for example, bulldoze the historic buildings along George Street and put up a Walmart. I mean, what's What's preventing that? From what you're saying, there's regulations that the province controls that, and the city is a, a child of the province, so to speak, no, in terms of legislation? That's right. Certainly the province is a child of, uh, the, the city is a child of the province and has to follow the municipal act as to how it runs. Mm-hmm. But it also must follow the planning act. And in, within the planning act, there's the provincial policy statement and various provincial plans that guide what the city should be looking at in a general context. And then the city makes the detailed decisions in the official plan and some of the other planning decisions that must fit with it. So, yes, the official plan and planning is a dynamic art and science. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really depends on the community to get engaged in order that their voice is heard. And this is a wonderful opportunity to do that as the official plan is under a comprehensive review at this point in time. Now, Sarah, you're you're a planner. Now, how can these planning decisions be made given the size and the scope of the variables? I mean, there's so much going going on in in the immediate and if we look out 10 20 30 years and we've got things like climate change we don't know how that's going to influence how peterborough goes we've got things like uh, artificial intelligence and driverless cars how is that going to change traffic how do you do that how do they do that (laughs) that's a really big question and i think it's one that uh, people within the planning profession struggle with all the time Mm -hmm. actually you know official planning documents are some of the longer range policies that we put in place within the planning framework Uh, and they are based in large part on projections projections Mm -hmm. of population change projections of employment change Mm -hmm. land use patterns some possible you know cultural or technological Mm -hmm. shifts as well but to a certain extent, you know, planners on the ground need to have a bit of a bifocal vision to see both that long term, how we're going to, you know, achieve targets related to some of the longer term trends or shifts that we're seeing climate change, mm-hmm. you know, employment development is a, is a long term game. So is housing development, it's not something that happens overnight. Uh, and then also on the short term on the day to day, how do we make decisions that are reflective of our, you know, current realities, current needs and still building towards that longer term vision. So official plans do need to be adaptable. They do need to be to a certain extent, you know, living documents. I think Mm. more and more we're seeing language around principles, visions included in planning documents so that there is that larger framework to track back to if smaller tweaks are needed to be made along the way. (laughs) Uh, You're not losing, losing track of what that longer-term vision is that you're setting, even if you might have to tinker with some of the details along the way, which is inevitable. I think, you know, part of the issue that we've encountered here in Peterborough uh, with some planning decisions that have been made outside of the scope of of our current official plan is that we're working with a plan that is quite old. So having a more up-to-date version of that, I think the hope is that more of our decisions can be guided by that overall policy framework as opposed to continual tinkering that is needed when you're working in an an outdated policy environment in in some ways. Yes, I mean, and we have the ultimate irony in in that uh, our mayor-elect is not as old as our official plan. (laughs) Make of that what we will. Now, we talked about two factors, about uh, consequences of climate change and consequences of emerging new technologies, both of which are, uh, are significant unknowns. How do we make those planning decisions in light of those consequences? Sure. sure. 
Um, Bill, I think we're I think we're at the uh, the juncture of two really important things uh, at the time of reviewing our official plan. I think of it in terms of the 12 years that the International Panel on Climate Change, the UN latest report on climate change, which gives us 12 years. And that's three elections from now. <laughs> so that kind of puts it in perspective. That's not that long. Right. So the, uh, ur- the growing urgency and awareness of climate change is one thing. And along with that is, and if I, I will call it a new technology, which is c- civic engagement. Mm. Um, it's been a, a new thing in Peterborough to engage with the ordinary people in the community as much as we have, which is little compared to how much we really, really should be mm. doing. But people have a taste for it. And uh, when, you, when you do it and you do it well, and then people realize what, how important it is for them to speak and City Hall realizes how important it is for them to be heard. Uh, even though there's often resistance to that or the methodologies or new technologies that they use for engagement are not at their best, but they're learning, and we're all learning that. So if I can bring those two together, we have the civic engagement as a way of strengthening community. And a stronger community, uh, as Sarah, who works in public health, would know, a stronger community, a healthier community, a community that is more democratically engaged, is listened to, and is talking to each other, is... It's a way of community development and strengthening community. Hmm. And that is one of the major responses to climate change, is to have a strong, healthy, engaged community. Uh. Because we are going to have to work together to accomplish what we need to do in that short period of 12 years. Sure. And so urban, urban planning or urban design becomes a response in itself to climate change. Now, can Peterborough learn anything from other communities who are obviously also have official plan reviews and, and plan for the future? And Penn, uh, if I could ask you, uh, what what has gone on in other jurisdictions? I know you've done some work in London. and What can Peterborough learn from that? Yeah, I did some journalism about the London process for creating their official plan, and it was a inspiring example for a bunch of us here in Peterborough, both in terms of what the plan looked like and in terms of their engagement process. What the plan looked like, these do not need to be dry, jargon-ridden documents. The London plan um, is written in plain language. It begins with a couple of pages that state 12 specific challenges that the city needs to respond to that are reasons that this plan cannot just be an iteration of past plans, and they include climate change. They include uh, um, the changing uh, demographics. They include um, unmanageable traffic congestion for which there is no solution based on what the planners themselves have determined other than a a massive focus on public transit and active transportation. And they engaged with thousands of people. They engaged they? over they had they had a year long community mm-hmm. conversation. The um, um, that was an inspiration here in Peterborough. The planning process required them to hold three traditional public meetings. They held those. They had no option to hold those. They were exactly as joyful as they usually are. And then they had, each speaker had seven minutes. And, yes. and then <laughs> and then they had ninety seven others where people wow. actually gather all over the community. Mm-hmm. They heard from sixteen thousand people in a really significant way, and many mm-hmm. more than that in a minor way. Uh, and they listened to people. People in the way that they talk in ordinary day-to-day life about the vision for mm-hmm. their community that they want. And their plan is not a zoning land use document. It's a vision document. And I think that focus on vision and principles is key. And I want to relate that straight back to Peterborough and what I think has been the best example of doing it differently here, something that we've found hopeful, which is there was a four-day design charrette held oh. here in June. And that was a highly participatory process that drew in um, – there were 160 widely representative members of the community invited. And when you change the question from what are the limitations on this lot or this decision that's on the table right now to what kind of city do you want to live in 20 years mm. from now, there was wide agreement all over mm. the room about some really important uh, shared principles, which included building up and in as a way of supporting transit, making the downtown more vibrant, um, bringing Jackson Creek to the surface, having fingers of green through the city that are a key asset that that we have shared values about as soon as we start talking about it in the long term. 
um, much, much, much more than that. Um, The city of Victoria, this is uh, Cheryl again, the city of Victoria, which isn't that much bigger than Peterborough, decided that civic engagement was a really good idea. And so they, they, uh, they went through a process of kind of uh, codifying it or systematizing it and describing uh, the various degrees of it, uh, how it is best done, why it is uh, important, who should be involved, uh, what are the values and the principles that should be at play in every consultation. And they seem to be very committed to rolling out uh, a very um, well-thought-out way of doing community engagement, and they've produced a document that I think would be very, very useful to uh, our new council. Just to give you an example, they give a, um, a continuum of civic engagement. So the usual way that the city engages in the past, say over the official plan or a zoning bylaw change or a- anything like that, was uh, we'll, um, we'll keep you informed. <laughs> that's a sort of one-way communication. It's, uh, you know, they'll tell you what's up and, and thank you very much. And then the next level of that is consultation, which is we'll listen to and acknowledge your concerns. That's better. So there's uh, an input from people into the city. And the next level is um, involvement, which is we'll work with you to ensure your concerns and aspirations are directly reflected in the decisions made, directly reflected in the decisions made. So um, they have to do more work with the public uh, that they are both understanding it and then they can prove that they've heard it. So the fourth level is collaboration, where it's really a back and forth and a, a mutual sharing among all that are involved in the consultation. And that means we'll look to you for advice, the city says, and innovation and incorporate this in decisions as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So they, there's really a partnership with the public there. That's, that's a very deep kind of civic engagement. So the design charrette where, that uh, Ben referred to, where do, would that fall on that continuum? I would put, a- and what, what is a design charrette? What happened there? Well, a, a charrette is kind of a rapid prototyping. So what you do is uh, you, you take people who are – they're not the experts, but you put the experts in the room with them. And the role of the experts is not to make all of the decisions. It's to know the constraints and give uh, highly expert and skilled advice. And it was an actual design process that looked at key uh, corridors and uh, particular nodes, uh, meeting places of those corridors in the city and how to, how to design them for the future. A big focus on the downtown, but also on Lansdowne Street. Um, um, for example, Morrow Park was one of the areas. And it was actually uh, groups of citizens representing a wide spectrum of points of view in the community, literally drawing on uh, overlays on aerial photos, the, the future that they wanted for the city. Uh, and it goes high on that spectrum of, of public engagement because well, let me contrast it with something as a way of explaining mm-hmm. that. Um, there are people who think that our PDI sale public engagement was a good public engagement. What it was was a reasonably good example of the city explaining what it had already decided and trying to prove mm-hmm. why it was the right decision and not having the slightest interest in listening to what the community actually had to say in response. That is not public engagement in the 21st century. That's Mm. the old way of doing things. There's a set of values behind that. Uh, I mean, it's literally the, the shared um, the shared values of many of the, the old guard at City Hall who just got voted out who believe it is their job to know best mm-hmm. and that listening is um, kind of a distraction from that. And those processes originated in the 1970s. There is a new mm-hmm. generation of public engagement that is about uh, listening to people before the plans are drawn and the decisions are made. Ian? I think there's another example that we can look at in Guelph where a number of terms back there was a new mayor there that had a vision for public engagement and they developed a a whole communications package of how they interact with their community and get input and guide and frame different consultation processes. And I think that's along the lines of what we might do here under a, a new mayor, a new council, and I think a critical issue that came up during the campaigns, that of how do we do public engagement better and uh, in a way that can feed into our official plan and other other planning uh, 
uh, initiatives in the city. So how does this dynamic work? We live in a system of representative democracy. We vote them, vote our representatives in. We've voted in a new council, and they make decisions for us. And yet, Cheryl used the term the highest uh, level on your, your, your pantheon of involvement, or your scale of involvement, was collaboration. How do citizens actually have some clout in this process so they can participants can see the fruits of their input. How does that... How do citizens have clout? <laughs> uh, I, I think that starts with the citizens um, <laughs> uh, believing that, um, that they will be listened to right. and uh, also learning the mechanisms of being heard because there are processes and formal things that uh, yes. have to be put in place for those voices to make their way to the council chamber, uh, to staff, and uh, into final decisions, bylaws, policies, programs, that kind of thing, funding, budgeting, all of that. So um, how, do, how do they get heard? Uh, learn how to um, speak at council. You've got seven minutes. There's an agenda. Um, you speak through the chair. There, there are little things like that. Don't be afraid, particularly at a, perhaps with, with the new council, to um, stand up and speak. It's, it can be... Very daunting. Uh, go with friends. Have somebody come up to the mic with you if you're going to speak at council. If you're going out to consultations, read a little bit, do your homework, or show up completely naive and ask some really naive questions because those are some of the most revelatory questions that can be asked. Yes, yeah, so th- the thing that was impressive about the design charrette in June at Peterborough Square where about 100 people gathered was that people without much knowledge of planning, frankly, myself, I could have a conversation with uh, someone very high up in the uh, fire uh, fire safety and and find out things about planning that uh, from a fire safety perspective that influences what the city must do. And, And we actually had a conversation as opposed to my, you know, the seven minutes uh, I called the firing squad and uh, no dialogue. Uh, you refer to this pantheon of those uh, ways of doing community engagement. The very highest level of that is empowerment, mm. where uh, a council will say, we will do what you suggest. Mm. That sounds like a foreign language. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually have examples of it in Peterborough in a small way, and, and Cheryl helped bring them about. We had our experiment with participatory budgeting in which right. citizens were invited to propose projects to plan them together, and the city agreed to fund the ones that got the most votes. And they were small, but it, it worked. Okay. Now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't... Uh air some emotional scars here, having presented to council a few times on certainly the parkway and the PDI issue. I'll never forget that feeling of sort of futility and anger standing up there, you know, in both cases, putting a fair amount of time into this presentation, making the presentation, the seven minutes, the PowerPoints, and then watching in the case of uh, the Parkway and other 69, 70 presentations, many of which were, were very well planned, designed, thought out, and then have council do a quick one, one run around, any questions, no questions, let's vote, and vote it down, and or vote down the input of, of citizens. That was so discouraging. It was deflating. In fact, I think it created part of the anger that led to the change we saw on October 22nd. Now, how can we do this better? Sir? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to keep in mind that a delegation to council is in some ways a kind of last gap measure for that sort of input. There's a significant amount of work uh, that has been put in by staff in getting reports to council for consideration. Would it be so po- it, would, excuse me, but would it be possible to have more public input further upstream before the staff does quite that volume of work? Well, I think that's the hope of some of the techniques okay. that Cheryl has discussed already today. Is you don't implement those at the end of the process, but at the beginning of the process, ensuring that you know you're getting feedback from people all along the way uh, oh. involved in the decision making and the reporting. And so, when a report gets provided to council, you know it's not the last 
or the first opportunity that people have to consider it and to provide input on it. I do think that there's also a need to be strategic about how and when we do that kind of consultation. Mm. You know, there is a certain amount of uh, fatigue that you could reach with citizens and involving, you know, people in kind of everyday routine decisions versus, you know, Mm. some of the bigger strategic conversations that we're talking about today, like the official plan review or more, you know, Mm. longer term development decisions. Uh, You know, the the spectrum of participation kind of thing, idea and some of those ideas that Cheryl presented, you know, there are totally appropriate times when just informing the public is actually what you want to do mm-hmm. and and knowing when those times are versus when it's a time to actually collaborate and involve is also an important kind of strategic framework that our new council is going to have to start to develop a culture around also. Because one consequence as uh, listening as you were talking is these sound like very time intensive processes. And, and, you know, we don't have an infinite budget for hiring more staff at City Hall. They are really time intensive processes, both for staff and Mm. for citizens. And, you know, certain citizens have um, more privileges of of time and availability Mm. to participate, you know, comfort with the processes that we use to participate in Peterborough. Uh, So there's also a need to kind of you know, do it well when we're doing it. And that does require being strategic about when we're doing it, too. Cheryl. Uh, Speaking of comfort and um, welcoming uh, (laughs) that Sarah is alluding to there, I have a pet peeve. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, maybe it's shared by others, listeners and those here. Uh, which is the actual physical design of our council chamber. Ah, oh, <laughs> say, say some more. <laughs> uh, democracy is supposed to be kind of a circle uh, right. where we're all equal and we can all uh, approach authority equally and without intimidation. But the design of the room where uh, most of the space is, uh, given the constraints there, uh, is taken up by council itself, staff and press, and then the public are kind of an afterthought shoved back in the corner. <laughs> uh, there's no coat rack. You, right. can't, you right. can't move your chair, you know. Right. They've tried to uh, counterbalance those detriments by a good sound system, but the sight lines aren't great. And um, it just would speak volumes if we could uh, meet in a, a space that's appeared and felt more um, democratic and equal. Now, try and put that in the budget and see how long that lasts. Yeah, and thinking about welcoming and how do we how do we move those conversations further upstream? And I think it's it's in large part, or at least part of the solution, is developing relationships, and that that means becoming familiar with how City Hall works. Mm. Um, it's developing relationships in our neighborhood so that we have neighborhood associations so we don't have to go every time or there are multiple ways of getting engaged. It's taking City Hall out to the community and bringing the community into City Hall. So it's back and forth, that relationship. And that is, that's also, I think, uh, a lesson from indigenous people is that being in a circle, that equals the power. It creates a more welcoming environment. In fact, in a couple of days, we'll be marking the 200th anniversary of Treaty 20, which was signed in 1818. And that is an opportunity, I believe, with some discussions at Trent University over this coming weekend at the Elders Gathering, at the Ministry of Natural Resources, uh, with a number of First Nations presentations, etc. It's a really uh, an important opportunity to re-enliven and reinvigorate our relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And there's many lessons in that conversation. There's many gifts brought in that, that sharing And I think we can bring that to public engagement. We can bring it to City Hall. We can bring it to the kinds of conversations we're having in our community and between our community and other communities that um, are near to us. You know, something you said, Ian, uh, triggered a memory of uh, someone told me about uh, there's a group in Hamilton called Council Watch. And apparently this is a group of citizens that, independent of City Hall, they, they, they send representatives to all the meetings and they find out when votes are being taken and they inform others and then council watch this organization puts out uh you know information to the whole community because one 
if you have if you're working full time, you have family responsibilities, or uh, what have you, uh, it's, it's impossible to keep abreast of everything that's going on at City Hall for one individual, particularly if you have demands on your time. So, how could that work in Peterborough? I wonder. Well, I think there's an opportunity with the updating of the city's website to uh-huh. find ways to bring, concentrate identify some of the major initiatives. And as Sarah identified, there are some issues that perhaps require a simple information or a simple discussion, others that may require a lot more effort and engagement towards a collaborative model in order to come up with that longer term, that more significant decision. So I think there's, um, through the city's website, there's that opportunity. Certainly with um, Reimagine Peterborough, we have Tried could not, you could you just describe what is Reimagine Peterborough? Reimagine Peterborough is a is a community movement that's fostering engagement of of Peterborough in our official plan and in conversations about how to enhance public engagement. And we've been involved in uh, staffing a number of events such as uh, Peterborough Pulse several years, uh, the Gilmore Street uh, Garage Sale, other events, and. We recognize that the city is doing that as well in some cases, but we're trying to supplement and expand, enlarge the scope of what might be available to the city. And so it's an opportunity for us. We have built some of those relationships with city staff. We are – some of us are appointed to – the official plan working group. So getting engaged at earlier stages and at the strategic mm-hmm. stage, as, as Sarah is involved with the planning advisory committee, that's mm-hmm. to look at strategic initiatives coming forward and garner some of the public input. Ben. Yeah, uh, that's um, thanks for all that. That's great. And uh, reimagine our launch event was – Peterborough Pulse in 2016, and our launch consisted of putting a booth in the middle of George Street uh, and inviting people to draw on giant sheets of paper what they wanted to see Peterborough look like in 20 years. Uh, We were doing that not inside the official process and not opposed to the official process, but alongside the official process as a way of inviting much more participation and even to try to model for people at City Hall what a different form of engagement could look like. And that first afternoon that Reimagine was out there in public, we received input from more citizens than the city had in the five previous years of the official (laughs) plan, official process. Uh, It had done an engagement that was adequate um, by traditional standards in 2011, um, and it came out with reasonable conclusions. There were about 160, 180 people involved in that process, and they considered that they were done, the public engagement Mm -hmm. on the plan. we have helped multiply that number by 10. We've um, encouraged and now supported them in doing a number of, of uh, wide public surveys that asked a, a, a lot of good questions in more plain language with more illustrations. And we've had up to 1,600 people participate in those surveys. Uh, and uh, that's that's a good start. So citizens do not have to stay inside official processes. Sure. Yeah, I think that there are other good examples of, of how, you know, some planning work is getting taken out of the confines of City Hall that are happening here in Peterborough, too. I think of uh, Greenup's neighbor plan process, which is a project that's been going on for the past year and a half or so, um, which is really about uh, creating the context in which, um, you know, traditionally more marginalized folks, people who wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable coming in and doing a delegation to council or being involved in more bureaucratic, technocratic processes, get the planning processes brought to their neighborhood and get to be involved in place-based decision-making on an ongoing basis through, you know, some fun and interactive means of identifying community assets, mapping routes and, and that sort of thing. So there's other examples as well. And part of you know, what I think good community engagement could look like It's at City Hall is not just uh, its own internal processes, but also how it attunes itself to those parallel processes that are happening in the community, which are multiple here in Peterborough. Could you just give us a little sidebar on what is GreenUp? Uh, GreenUp is a local uh, nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that does environmental stewardship and uh, okay. urban planning uh, programs in, in Peterborough. Great. Cheryl? We've been talking about these 
technologies of engagement, these processes. Yes. And, and some of them are, are fun, like the street uh, booth at Pulse. Some of them are more formal. But I'm sitting here kind of thinking of the new councillors and new mayor particularly, and knowing that sometimes they're going to get creamed because it's not all sweetness and light having to make <laughs> these decisions. And you're going to hear from uh, every single voice from every spec- side of every spectrum on every issue. And I think we have to remind ourselves in, in a democracy in a s- rather small town that we have that we're all in this together. And these are real people that we're dealing with here. These are people we'll meet in a store uh, we might see them at gatherings or in a choir we're in or not just across the length of the council chamber. And the decisions they make is where the future shows up first. It's right here in our own city, mm. right in our own homes, in our backyards. And when we engage in giving our input to the city, always remember that for everything that we say, somebody will be saying the opposite. Somebody will be pushing the opposite. And so the decisions they make are very difficult, and I think they're going to be more difficult. And I'm going to return to my favorite topic, which is <laughs> the impact of climate change, sure. and, uh, and return also to the official plan, because I think the official plan is a really good instrument for adaptation to climate change and some really pithy examples. Some of the, uh, the rules and regulations and permissions that we give through the official plan can uh, affect whether we can decentralize our energy system and give more control over our wires and poles, over our electricity generation, uh, so that we can have life-essential electricity in uh, some of the severe weather catastrophes that are coming, and they will come. Uh, There will be neighborhood disputes over whether to put a solar array on this factory or that lawn, Or can we uh, get control over our energy generation by a biogas digester in a neighborhood? And what if it smells? My neighbor is going to complain. I mean, I'm getting down to the real nitty-gritties of stuff. We can't just always talk in generalities. And so when we think of the official plan, we have to think of it as a way of designing a city that will be um, adaptive and resilient in the face of all of these things. And urban agriculture is another one. Uh, mm-hmm. Are we going to allow chickens? <laughs> our favorite topic, right? Um, are we going to uh, uh, expand our community gardens? How are we going to – Ian's involved in the natural uh, system planning. And uh, those are all essential to our surviving through climate change. Ben? Let me give an example of how a whole lot of that comes together in one concrete place. Sure. Well, less concrete after the place is... Uh, <laughs> um, and that's uh, the Bethune Street project that's coming up. So there's... Um, we had this massive flood in Peterborough that people will remember that some... 2004. Some remembered yeah. it when yeah. there was a suggestion of having where roads and rivers meet be our new community slogan. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but uh, uh, <laughs> there were creative people at City Hall who, first of all, recognized that massive new uh, stormwater drainage pipes needed to be put in the ground um, to deal with future such events. Um, chose Bethune Street for doing that, but also saw that it didn't have to be put back the same way. It could mm. become a um, a model of the redevelopment that we want for our city. It could be some urban intensification. It could be um, um, safe bikeways through the city. It could be green space, even some urban agriculture along there. And in doing that, there was, to my mind, one of the best engagement processes that's been done in the city. One of the best because it wasn't about drawing the plans and taking them to, taking them to people and saying, do you want this or slightly less of that or slightly more of that? It was actually going to places like the Stewart Street neighborhood and saying, what do you value? Uh, hmm. What do you want? What are your dreams? Over a course of several months with um, some outside facilitators, again, a design charrette process, uh, drew beautiful visions that brought people along. And I'll add one more thing, though I'm taking too much time here. The remarkable thing to me about that process, which the building will be done over the next couple of years, um, uh, the remarkable thing to me about that process is the consultant who did some of that work is the same consultant who was involved in the total public engagement catastrophe of the parkway. And the reason is they were asked a different question. (laughs) <laughs> they were asked a different question. So uh, right. with Bethune Street, it was uh, it was about 
you know, what do you want to see? What matters to you? What do you value um, up front with design as the core of it? The parkway process, they were asked a narrow engineering question about the best place to put a road. Um, and uh, it respected no other community values. It wasn't what they were asked. So that's why you get justified uproar about putting four lanes of traffic through the middle of the most loved park in our city. The wrong question was asked of engineers. Okay. Now, there are some new things emerging uh, on the short time frame, uh, how, uh, not the short time, the, the immediate uh, time frame in terms of planning. Um, we have uh, Ashburn Development coming up with the uh, Crescent Street uh, proposal, this this uh, staggered condominium development on Crescent Street that looks pretty positive. Now, is and it, it certainly brings intensity to downtown. And at first blush, it looks so much more desirable than more more car centric uh, single uh, single family housing uh, developments uh, that eat up uh, prime farmland. Is this a sign that pennies are beginning to drop and lights are beginning to go on? How, how are people responding to that one? I think developments like this one um, uh, rip the lid off of uh, one of the uh, a classic challenge or dilemma at the heart of the Canadian psyche <laughs> or the Peterborough psyche. Well, let's unbundle that. <laughs> uh, we um, intensification mm. is a brand new concept to us as uh, as city dwellers. And it's being driven again by uh, the the state of the world, nature, the the yeah. uh, growing population, uh, uh, CO two in the atmosphere, all of that, immigration, uh, migration. Um, but we have this myth in our in our psyche that um, we we have an entitlement to a single family home and with some green space around it, and, or if we have enough money, we can make make a great big space in the suburbs and have lots of infrastructure and roads and. And we have this image, and maybe I'm speaking from my generation, but uh, it's a very powerful image. Uh, we, our ancestors came here, and the prairies were just endless land, which we stole, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and it's a big image. We have a big country, and we have lots of space. When we're asked to um, intensify, it, it rubs against a lot of people's uh, uh, unexamined assumptions. And it, yes. they might surface in these kind of developments, and we might get intergenerational conflict over that kind of thing, or we'll get uh, other kinds of, of, of stories that people carry around with them that clash with the need to build up and intensify. Now, the, the, the name of our show, of course, is Pints and Politics, and to get to the politics part... We've got a new city council, a, some would say a progressive city council, and we have Doug Ford. Could, what could we see unfolding in terms of the interface between this, this very conservative provincial government who doesn't have the same lenses, planning lenses as uh, the former government and this, uh, how shall we say, this fresh council here in Peterborough. How is that going to evolve and where how will the dance uh, progress to Peterborough's benefit? Will it? I think there's an opportunity for the city to really take the reins of its own destiny. We certainly have hmm. a planning context that's given by the province but planning is an art and a science and part of that art is determining the values and priorities of the community and so Peterborough is different than perhaps Oshawa, than London than uh, Kingston perhaps and and so we need to identify what is important to us um, we need to draw on the community knowledge and that's the value of, of public engagement and an official plan that will hopefully entrench some broad mechanisms for public engagement. And with this new council, I think they're more open to that. They ran on campaigns, as a, a number of them did, recognizing that public engagement was, a, was an issue for the citizens of Peterborough. So I think we can shape a bunch of that destiny on our own. The Doug Ford provincial government will come up with its own decisions and, and we'll have to navigate that. That's the resilient and flexible kind of community that we are. But we have certain values here and we can express those and, and bring them forward. We also have an important relationship with the provincial government in that 
We have many uh, civil service folks from the provincial government living and working and bringing their knowledge and their dollars, we must keep that in mind, to Peterborough. So we have that important relationship with the province in multiple ways. The health unit is one example. The conservation authority is another example. So we have a number of channels for communicating with the province and shaping our own destiny and building our relationship with our local MPP, with our local MP, and having the the conversations um, with them in these broader circles that we express our values and, and shape our future ourselves. Ben? There are some opportunities for unlikely-seeming alliances here, too. One of the reasons for doing uh, better planning that includes more transit and more um, uh, building up and in in the middle of the city is it costs a heck of a lot less. It's way more efficient. Um, The same thing that saves governments money is also what creates better quality of life for people. Let me get really specific about that. Could could you explain it's cheaper? Because that's quite a dynamic. Yeah. So um, think of it this way. Um, It it costs a multiple of the amount to service a lot in the suburbs that it does to service an existing lot in the downtown. Um, and particularly with the, the low density, sprawling suburban development, it's not, it's, it's an, it gets described by planners as an because ex- the roads and the sewers are already here. That's downtown. right, and okay. and so and so for example, well, a really obvious example is if if you have um, forty or sixty uh, people per acre, you will never support viable transit there. Mm. It cannot be done. And the there's um there's some beautiful language that actually comes from planners, not from fringe types uh, like like <laughs> some of us, uh, but from from planners who call the current pattern of development a Ponzi scheme because the way it works is that you build a subdivision. Um, everybody thinks, oh, this is good for the community. It's development. People pay the development charges. But the long-term multi-cycle maintenance costs of all of the services in that in that subdivision will never be covered by the tax base that's being created there. And that is true of every subdivision that we've been building by the post-war pattern. (laughs) Sir? I think within the conversation about intensification, it's also important to keep in mind all of the other amenities that are needed to support a quality of life for people living in a more kind of urbanized environment. So if you're not going to live on the single-family lot with, you know, access to green space in your backyard – do you have a park down the street? Also, in terms of protecting some of these areas in our urban in our urban space uh, that have been and continue to be home to some of the residents in our community who maybe live on lower incomes, you know, so ensuring that there it continues to be affordable housing within those areas. So while yes, it is cheaper to build, um, you know, more intensely in urban areas and to service those lots, you know, I think some. Some of the some of the dance between you know our aspirations and our values locally and what might be permissible and and the kind of more market and policy environment that we'll li- we're living in in the province is how do we also ensure that we have those other protections for amenities, for inclusionary kind of principles, for counteracting some of the forces of you know displacement that sort of thing. Sure, I think there may yeah. be another convergence as well. Certainly, the values uh, expressed by the residents of Peterborough in a number of planning initiatives have focused on the high value on trails and greenways and green space. And conservatives in the past have been at the forefront of some leading conservation initiatives, the Oak Ridges Moraine, uh, as one example, Kortha Highlands, um, a number of others. So there is a sense that there's um, conservative and conservation can align, and there's some positive signals from the province. So we'll see how that plays out. But there's a real opportunity for bringing the values that Peterborough has spoken about in the past, and there's alignment with some of the directions that the uh, conservative government may be contemplating. Great. Now, one of the things that's impressed me in uh, the various issues I've become uh, associated with over the years is the talent in the local community. I, I mean, uh, I'm thinking of all the presentations I've heard over the PDI issue, over the parkway, over intensification. There's some local expertise here. And yet, how do we change the profile of the people who, at least up until now, get involved in these planning discussions? If I think back to the charrette, the design charrette in June, 
I knew many of the people there. It was almost like a a, um, a school reunion. You know, we say, oh, I remember you from this and that. And, that. and of course, that's wonderful. But we were all, dare I say, um, involved, uh, moderately comfortable, standing in front of a group talking, meeting new people, expressing ourselves. And yet when I did some uh, survey work for Reimagine Peterborough two summers ago and took my cell phone down to uh, the uh, Music Fest and just started asking members of the public what sort of Peterborough you want, I, I wound up pe- speaking to people who don't fit that profile, maybe didn't have many initials after their names, but had some really strong ideas. I remember one character saying to me, Look, all this Bethune Street redesign stuff is just great. Myself and my neighbors, we need jobs. We're on disability. We can't get work. You know, and uh, sort of a wake-up call. So how do we change? How do we get those other voices involved? In London, one of those hundred public meetings that I talked about was at a homeless shelter. 150 people participated in that meeting. Um, you know, that was one of, of 100. But the remarkable thing that comes out of actually talking to a wide spectrum of people across the community is you get really good planning out of it. The priorities that people mm-hmm. express when they talk in plain language um, are the principles of good 21st century planning. And so it takes the planners themselves and people at City Hall uh, recognizing that it is not their job to get people talking in policy jargon language and to explain the way Mm. they speak. It's their job to listen to people's stories and uh, Mm. aspirations, talking about their neighborhoods, and then to reflect that back in policy and then to see if they've been properly understood. Okay, we're winding down here. Any uh, final thoughts about what people can do after listening to this to get involved, to, to... be be a, play a bigger role in this emerging future for Peterborough as citizens? I think one of the ways is to keep an eye out for um, some of the major public engagement exercises that the city will be rolling out over the next uh, four or five months. Um, they're related to the official plan? Related to the official plan, exactly. And I think we'll also see that the council will explore a charter or a procedure to foster engagement. And so we'll find more channels for individuals to speak up and and provide their voice, not just at City Hall, but in other ways. So keep an eye on changes in procedures, changes in attitudes, the training that has already happened at city staff may get rolled out uh, over time. Sarah? I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind that by just living in Peterborough and going about your day-to-day life, that's the sort of information, that's the expertise that you can provide to planning. You know, so you don't need to have technical knowledge. You don't need to speak in policy jargon. You need to be reflective of your own patterns, your own behaviors, what you want to do in Peterborough, uh, what you aspire to do, and and be open to kind of bringing that information forward in whatever means is available or, or, you know, helping to steer some of those means as well. Sure. Um, I think there's also a number of other things is have conversations with your neighbors. Um, talk about what is important to you. Take it beyond your own household to your, your neighborhood, your street. Perhaps join an organization. Certainly reimagine Peterborough uh, appreciates uh, involvement on that front. But there's many other organizations to support, and uh, they can foster that connection across the community. Okay, so thank you very much, Ian Atteridge, Cheryl Lyon, Ben Wolf, and Sarah Cullingham. Thank you so much for your, your time and your ideas. Just before we sign off, here's our schedule for next week. We'll be holding a panel about uh, Peterborough's possible responses to climate change. And uh, after that, we'll be doing a session two weeks out, uh, How to Encourage Growth in the Arts. So please join us again every Tuesday evening at 9 on Trent Radio, 92.7 FM. And if you miss us on the radio, you can download the show the next day at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. Until next week, this is Bill Templeman.